This is The Guardian. Today, as the COVID inquiry resumes this morning, here's what we've learned so far. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we start, a heads up. If you can believe it, in this episode about a public inquiry, there's a small amount of swearing. The very first thing that took place was this 20-minute video was played of people who were affected by COVID in all sorts of different ways. You know, my son, who was eight, he went to school in September 2021, and a couple of weeks later he got COVID for the first time. And our lives changed. It very much, I think, helps everybody in the room and watching to return it to its core, that however long and expensive and arguably cumbersome this process is, it is about, in some ways, honouring the memory of those who died and those who were affected in different ways. Peter Walker is The Guardian's deputy political editor, and he's been following a public inquiry into how the UK handled COVID-19. We got a phone call from the care home to say that my mummy was being rushed to hospital. So my mummy had contracted COVID in the care home and passed away in January 2021. It's not just the fact that my dad died. It's the how and the why he died. And that's what I need to have answered. That's what needs to be addressed. And that's what I hope the inquiry can help do. Even now, and there's a lot of the inquiry still to go, we've had quite a lot of major things. We had Jeremy Hunt, who was the health secretary for a long time, who basically said in the build-up for COVID, in the years leading up to it, the UK was preparing for the wrong thing. They were preparing for a pandemic of a flu-type virus. It was an assumption that if there was pandemic flu, it would spread using layman's terms like wildfire, and you pretty much couldn't stop it. You've had several people giving essentially tearful apologies for what went wrong. The doctrine of the UK was to plan for the consequences of a disaster. Can we buy enough body bags? Where are we going to bury the dead? And that was completely wrong. In the advance of the pandemic, people thought there was a plan. And it turned out there probably wasn't. Hearings start again this morning with Number 10's former communications director, Lee Kane, scheduled to give evidence. And in the chair tomorrow, Boris Johnson's former chief advisor, Dominic Cummings. But we're already starting to get a sense of the biggest story the inquiry may tell. Of a virus that landed in a country with a chronically underfunded health system. Of a disaster that struck the country while Johnson was in power, but whose roots stretch back years before. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the revelations so far from the UK's COVID inquiry. 
Peter, since the lockdown ended in England in December 2021, we've learned a lot about how the government handled the pandemic. Sue Gray's report into Partygate, for example, showed that government ministers were often breaking the rules they'd set for the rest of the country. And some scientific advisers who worked with the government at that time have since been really critical of the way the government handled the pandemic. So where does this COVID inquiry fit in? What are the kinds of gaps that it can fill in our knowledge? This is basically meant to be the definitive answer to every part of this. It will look into the long-term preparedness of the UK, how the care sector coped, how the NHS coped. And it's meant to just give this incredibly deep picture of how government and the health and care and every other system worked together or sometimes didn't. And so to paint that deep picture, it has all the powers of a public inquiry. So tell me about what those powers are. The most important one, it is able to compel witnesses to not only give evidence in person, but to hand over evidence that they've got. So you're going to have all sorts of people. We've already had people like David Cameron, George Osborne, talking about the years before the pandemic and, for example, whether their austerity policies made the UK less well prepared in public health terms. Do you accept, Mr Cameron, that the health budgets over the time of your government were inadequate and led to a depletion in its ability to provide an adequate service? Um, I I don't accept that, um, neither on a sort of big picture level or on a small picture level. But we're also going to hear from people at the very, very centre of it. We're going to hear from Boris Johnson at some point. We're going to hear from Dominic Cummings, who's Johnson's chief advisor. We're going to hear from Simon Case, who is the most senior civil servant in the land. And it's arguable that almost every one of those people would have given evidence anyway. But this means they are compelled to answer questions. They have to be as honest as they can. They also have to give a very, very thorough witness statement to and they hand over contemporaneous evidence. And we've already had the inquiry process running up against the government, which this battle a few months ago when the government didn't want Boris Johnson to hand over his full unredacted diaries and WhatsApp messages and things like that. And the inquiry won. So it can basically, you know, now it's been set up by government, it can do things the government doesn't want it to do. And it's going to run for at least another two and a half years. Why is it that the process is going to take that long? Statutory inquiries tend to be quite long running because they're quite legalistic. They're like a court case. You have a barrister who represents the inquiry. You have all these side barristers who represent interested groups. But it's also just because the scope of COVID is so big. COVID affected so many different parts of government and you know the country more widely. It is cumbersome. And I know that there are people within the families and victims group who want it to go more quickly. But the hope is that at the end of this, you'll get as comprehensive an answer as you could possibly get. And of those vast number of people who will be called over the next years, who do you think are the key witnesses? We've already had a bit of human drama with that. I mean, when various witnesses who were in government at the time have given evidence, you've had them sometimes heckled. So this is the kind of big drama stuff. And I'm sure when Boris Johnson goes in, he will have a lot of shouts. But a lot of the really fascinating stuff is emerging sometimes from the less well-known witnesses, so scientists who are not part of government but were helping advise government in the build-up to COVID. And they're basically expressing, in retrospect, what was this panic. And there's also these little kind of vignettes and snippets which come out from WhatsApp messages or from emails. So we've already found out that Simon Case was kind of half-joking, half-not with other people, that Boris Johnson's wife was like the secret power in the land. 
it's slightly this lifting of the Wizard of Oz curtain and you get a glimpse behind the scenes and it's not always a very uh, edifying sight. Since the beginning of October, we've been hearing from a range of witnesses. The inquiry isn't going through events chronologically, but instead it's giving us these little glimpses of life inside the government in the weeks before the pandemic and then in the months after it actually hit. So tell me about what we've been learning. So one of the vignettes we had, we had um, some WhatsApps, which I read out to the inquiry from Dominic Cummings, who was Boris Johnson's chief advisor at the time, who described the Cabinet Office, which is the government department that's meant to coordinate everything across Whitehall and government, as being, quote, terrifyingly shit. The top WhatsApp is dated the 12th of March. I'm not going to read it all out. It's self-evident. And the, the, the theme and the tone and the manner of it is, is very clear. It's quite a Dominic Cummings sentiment, which we probably knew he thought because he was very condemnatory throughout his time in Number 10 about the civil service and the way things work like that. But it is interesting. You had someone who was arguably the second most important person in the country. He was Boris Johnson's right-hand person and Johnson would, according to what people said at the time, do what he said, who was saying that the central coordinating function of government basically didn't work. I mean, tell me about the kind of insight that we got into the way that the Johnson government was interacting with the civil service. There was an extract read from the diary of uh, Patrick Vallance, who was the government's chief scientific advisor at the time. This extract that was read out quoted Simon Case, which says Downing Street was, quote, at war with itself. In those diaries, in fact, on the 11th of November 2020, he says this of your successor, Cabinet Secretary Simon Case. Simon Case says, number 10, at war with itself. A carry faction with Gove and another with Spads. What are Spads? Special advisers, political appointees, not civil servants. PM caught in the middle. He has spoken to all his predecessors as cabinet secretary and no one has seen anything like it. To an extent, with all inquiries like this, they will uncover discontent with an organisation as big as a government. But even within that context, there was quite a lot of worries. Again, another message that was read out, which came from September 2020, again, in the kind of peak of COVID. It was from Simon Case, who described the government as a terrible, tragic joke. And again, seemed to argue that Boris Johnson's wife is essentially the real person who runs things. This is a narrative that people who reported on Number 10 at the time knew about or certainly had people complain to them about. But it's interesting, it's really, really interesting to see the people at the very, very top not only thinking the same, but actually writing it down. It was clear from the very first days of COVID that it was not going to hit everyone in the UK in the same way. From this inquiry, did you get a sense that the government understood that about the virus? We certainly heard evidence from some parts of, you know, we've not heard from the government ministers who were involved in that yet. But there's some experts who were very worried. We had Anne Longfield, who's the former commissioner for children, who expressed worry about a lack of planning for the way a pandemic could affect kids. They would normally go to the park. They would normally meet their friends. None of that was possible. Um, and the whole of the kind of, um, uh, 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 you know, 
socialising in public space policy seem to be geared towards adults. We have the one hour for exercise. Well, children don't generally exercise. They play together. And when we started having um, uh, allowances for families or for individuals to be able to meet and then a rule of six where groups of six could meet, um, children often in that equation uh, meant that families couldn't meet together. Not only the closure of schools, but the impact COVID had on restricting young people. You know, some more than others, but the impact is certainly an awful lot. You say that there was reduced visibility. Was that right? That's right. Uh, children uh, in uh, homes that were unsafe were out of sight, which was something that wouldn't have been the case if services had been operating in a normal way, schools had been open, the nurseries had been open. They heard from Sir Michael Marmot, who's probably the most eminent epidemiologist in the UK. He said that he knew well in advance if a pandemic hit, then it would affect some members of society much more than others. And he said that the way COVID did impact different people was an entirely predictable thing. So I think one of the interesting focuses for what the final report is, is whether it does essentially say that austerity and a period of government in which health and general inequalities grew made COVID affect the UK worse. Mm, that it was a disaster a decade in the making. There is an argument for that. And certainly people like Sir Michael Marmot had been saying for a long time that health inequalities, you know, A, they're incredibly bad anyway, in the sense you have these stats that the life expectancy in like the richest boroughs of Britain is getting on for 20 years longer than the poorest boroughs. But if you impose on that this respiratory illness that particularly affects people who have certain chronic conditions or live in damp housing or overcrowded places, then that was inevitably going to be the case. So a lot of these witnesses are not there to say, I told you so, but they are very much there to say, you know, we knew it would be like this. We've also been hearing from the government's own scientific advisers, the people who are supposed to be guiding them through this process. What's come out of their evidence? We've heard from a series of scientists who are university academics who were brought into meetings, you know, and were, were giving advice to the government. And the picture of them, people like Neil Ferguson, John Edmonds and so on, almost feels like this dawning sense of panic. Ferguson in particular was the person who did the modelling quite early in the pandemic, which said that you know hundreds of thousands of people could die and that was to an extent one of the main reasons why lockdown was imposed but they were alarmed at how slow the government was to act particularly this period of late february early march before lockdown was initially imposed because they knew the idea of trying to keep it out of the uk simply wouldn't work they were asked why didn't you do more why didn't you sound the alarm and ferguson did actually say he did a radio 4 interview where he said look you know, a lot of people could die. Clearly, we are all human beings and we're experts on infectious diseases. So we had more sense than many of what was about to happen, both in the spring of March of 2020 and in the autumn of 2020. And there were occasions where you know, frustration built up, let's say, at the apparent slowness of decision making. They were telling ministers, but they thought somewhere at the back of their minds there was somebody who had you know, an actual plan, that there was a reason for it, that there was a strategy with comms and things like that. And it's only afterwards they realised that there probably wasn't. My view is that, I mean, we, we have expertise to give to inform 
policy responses, but we are just citizens in society. And for something as consequential as a pandemic, where everybody will be affected by the decisions made, fundamentally it is for kind of policy makers to make those decisions, uh, not for scientists. So there was this amazing vignette in the last set of evidence before the recent break, in which there was this Zoom meeting held in September 2020. And we got to see these incredibly revealing whatsapps between dame angela mclean who is the new chief scientific advisor to the government but who was the ministry of defensive chief scientific advisor at the time and john edmonds who is an incredibly eminent epidemiologist at the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine and during a zoom meeting they were doing like i think lots of people at the time during zoom meetings did they were exchanging slightly pithy whatsapps and Angela McLean at one point referred to Rishi Sunak, who was in the meeting, in his Zoom meeting, as Dr. Death, the Chancellor. During the, the course of the, the, this WhatsApp string, we can also see a reference to Dr. Death, the Chancellor, and Dame Angela McLean saying, in ONS, you'd see it. Did you understand that those were references to the Eat Out to Help Out campaign? It's worth stressing that the inquiry has heard there's no evidence that Eat Out to uh, Help Out, which was this way over summer of 2020 to get people to eat out of restaurants did actually increase the death toll. But there was a lot of evidence that people, that certainly scientists, didn't think it was a good thing. And there was also an incredibly embarrassing moment in the same texts where Angela McLean, as someone else, as another scientist, were giving evidence over Zoom. What's up, John Evans, to say, who is this fuckwit? Angela McLean, who is this fuckwit? John Edmonds, every statistic is wrong. Angela McLean, Patrick and Chris will discount him later. John Edmonds was asked by the Inquiry QC who this was, and he said, because he's quite a kind of self-effacing, quiet man, he said, um, I think it's the next witness. Were those all references to the proponents of the contrary side of the debate? I'm pretty but sure it's your next witness. Professor Hennon. And that witness was Professor Carl Hennigan, who is also an expert but in a slightly different field. He is um, a professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford University. Um, after the meeting, I think Professors Hennigan and Gupta tried to re-engage battle and, and, and to write to say that they'd not had a fair hearing and, and there was further information well, they... I mean, I had interrupted Mr. Uh, Professor Hennigan at one point because um, he was making some really basic epidemiological errors, the sorts of ones that we teach our students on day one. It's pretty extraordinary and slightly mortifying how much of the evidence we've heard has emerged from these WhatsApp conversations that I guess no one involved ever thought would be made public, right? One thing I've noticed since the COVID inquiry started to take evidence and actually also since Matt Hancock's WhatsApps during COVID were leaked wholesale to the media, is the number of government special advisors who turn on the disappearing messages function, which under their rules are actually not meant to do. Hmm, okay. You know, you speak to governmental experts about this, and this whole idea is government by WhatsApp a bad thing. You can argue it both ways. There are academics who hark back to this golden age where all decisions were taken at meeting rooms with a civil servant taking minutes. But... Others will point out that a lot of decisions in the past would have been taken without any trail whatsoever, just a kind of quiet chat between an MP and a minister on the corridor with no one witnessing it and certainly no digital trail. And 
My guess is the COVID inquiry will make everybody in the politics world be more careful about what they WhatsApp in the knowledge that it could be published one day. How much do you think we should make of these WhatsApps? Are they just gossip or do they actually matter? Ultimately, what we make of it might have to wait till the end of the inquiry process. But I think there's a certain humanising element to these gossipy WhatsApps that are being passed around with no sense that they'd ever be published. You know, you have people who are often working incredibly long hours, trying their best. I mean, you get a lot of the emails from the uh, from the scientists are sent at midnight or one in the morning or things like that, saying, I'm about to log off, but before our meeting at 7am, here's what you, know, you probably need to know. So these are very, very eminent people often doing difficult things. I think with the politicians, there'll be less sympathy. Coming up, as the inquiry returns from its break, we're going to hear from some big-name witnesses. What could they reveal? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. So, Peter, they've been some of the key moments from this inquiry so far, but the public hearings get underway again starting today. So what are we expecting to hear over the next few weeks? We are due to hear from Dominic Cummings, who was uh, Boris Johnson's chief advisor at the time. 
We were due to hear imminently from Simon Case, who is head of the civil service and was at the time. He has taken a few weeks leave because he's got a medical procedure that needs to be done. So it's not quite clear when he's going to give evidence. But one of the things we've learned about the inquiry so far is that, you know, sometimes the big ticket witnesses are the ones who deliver the news. But sometimes it can just crop up in unexpected places because, for example, a scientist's testimony or the witness statement from a minor civil servant can reference an email or WhatsApp exchange that gets put up on the screen and shows us something that we never really knew. So as a journalist, it's a funny one to cover because you might think, oh, this witness won't generate much news, but you have to keep an eye on it. The health minister at the time, Matt Hancock, seemed to take the approach in his evidence of just putting his hands up and saying, look, we messed up, we could have been so much better, and profusely apologising for it. I am profoundly sorry for the impact that had I'm profoundly sorry for each death that has occurred. And I also understand why, for some, it will be hard to take that apology from me. How do you think these these other big names, people like Rishi Sunak, Dominic Cummings and others, are going to approach their time in the witness box? I think they'll be quite different for several reasons. If we get to Rishi Sunak when he's still inside number 10, he will have a lot to lose by admitting fault. Dominic Cummings, I don't think, has ever admitted fault. And so it partly depends on the political circumstances. Matt Hancock, when he gave his evidence, was no longer a minister. And by that time, he knew he was going to no longer be an MP at the next election because he's going to stand down. But also in personality terms, Hancock is the more likely person to do something like that. He is bit more kind of needy wanting to be liked and I think it was very open and honest you know I I watched that evidence that he gave and he was you know nearly in tears I think with any apologies you have to watch out for the yes I cocked up and I'm really sorry for cocking up and the slightly more nuanced you know mistakes were made one I mean, for those of us who don't report on politics every day, who don't work in Westminster, some of this evidence is just so damning. And many of those who are implicated are still around. In fact, they're in more senior positions. In the case of Rishi Sunak, he has the most senior position in government. What are the implications for them of the things that we're hearing so far? I think the broader picture is one of people trying their best, but within chaos. Um, So, you know, there was a lot of preparedness a lot of very very worthwhile preparedness for a pandemic of some sort because health advisors have been saying this is going to strike and ministers have been listening to them you know if there was a fault it was as much as anything with the scientific advice what some witnesses have said was this slight arrogance this belief that the UK knew best we didn't necessarily have to learn from East Asian countries Mm. and we had these long-standing ideas about a pandemic flu and we can cope with that and we were perhaps not quite as adaptable as we could have been. On top of that, there is the specific evidence about dysfunction within the Boris Johnson government. And I wouldn't be surprised if we potentially see an apology from someone like Rishi Sunak, which says, yes, of course, mistakes were made and we need to learn from them. But it's never quite clear what they were and whether he was to blame. One of the things that propelled him eventually into number 10, even after losing the initial leadership election, was the fact that he massively increased his prominence as Chancellor during covid Before he became the Chancellor, he'd never had a cabinet post. So he was not particularly well known. But in COVID, he almost had the kind of good job of giving out billions and billions of pounds. And one of the worries for him is whether all that starts to kind of bite back a bit. But it remains to be seen 
how much better another government would have done it because some of it was about the personalities and the people who got things wrong but a lot of it was structural stuff that stuff had been in place long before Boris Johnson and probably even before the Conservative governments. Mm. I mean this inquiry is intended to look back on the way that the government handled COVID but COVID hasn't gone away. Is there any sense the government is still worried about this virus, still actively trying to stop the spread? I don't think there's nearly as much focus on COVID as a frontline political issue, partly because just in physiological terms, it kills fewer people because almost all vulnerable people are now vaccinated one, two, three or four times. But also there is a sense there is a certain fatigue amongst voters with it. It's a bit like Brexit in 2019 when Boris Johnson won the election on this mantra of get Brexit done. There is an extent to which this kind of fatigue over COVID might help Sunak and the government slightly as the inquiry drags on. Because I think people are interested in these gossipy vignettes about WhatsApp messages, but they're perhaps switching on a little bit less about the serious lessons because it takes them all back to, for what was, you know, to most people a bad time, for some people an extremely bad time. And for those people for whom it was an extremely bad time, people who lost loved ones, or who still carry the legacy of the times they had COVID, how do you think this inquiry with these gossipy vignettes, with the failures that it's revealing about the government's approach, how do you think it all looks to them? If you were someone who you know, is in that particular circumstance, then I can only imagine that some of the stuff could make people feel quite angry. But I think the important thing is to recognise, you know, all the time, this is just a process. And I think ultimately lessons from previous inquiries like the Hillsborough inquiry and things like that is that they can be quite cathartic for people who've had a very bad time or lost loved ones. Just as long as it is thorough, I think for a lot of people, the most important lesson would be the idea that if there was another pandemic, then things would be done better. So there'd be fewer people the next time in a situation like them. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that was Peter Walker, Deputy Political Editor with The Guardian. His and all our coverage of the inquiry will be at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. I'm Michael Safi, and this episode was produced by Hannah Moore. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.